This podcast takes you into the rarely discussed realm of the personal decisions leaders have taken that have influenced their business decisions and developed them into the leaders they are today. The refreshingly honest experiences of those who have been very successful provide an insight into the challenges they faced, the successes they achieved, and the people who influenced them along their journey. Here's our host, Mark Silvera. Welcome to Business Made Personal. Today we have with us Kim Johnson. Kim is the CEO of CHU Underwriting Agencies. She joined the insurance industry in South Australia in 2005 having held various underwriting sales and management roles since. Kim has a wealth of experience and knowledge of the strata insurance industry. And in 2017, Kimberly was named Young Australian Professional of the Year at the Australian Insurance Industry Awards. In addition, Kim is a fellow and board member of ANZIF. She is a member of the Australian Institute of Company Directors and holds an MBA from AIM Business School. Welcome to Business Made Personal, Kim. Thank you, Mark. I always get very embarrassed when people read my bio. <laughs> it's a very good bio. I'm, I'm going to ask you a little bit about you know, some of the, the things that you specialise in. But before we get to that, I'd love to know a little bit about your life growing up prior to entering the insurance industry. So I grew up in southern suburbs of, of Adelaide, pretty low socioeconomic area. My parents both worked, but a lot of my friends at school had either one or, or neither parents working, lots of people on pensions and, and that sort of stuff. But my mum actually uh, worked at AMP uh, when I was a little girl. And I can remember she always used to get dressed up, look really beautiful every day, catch the bus into the city to go to work. So yeah, that was my sort of first introduction to insurance was just that my mum looked pretty... When she went to work every day, growing up, I had three brothers and sisters. Uh, we all played basketball, played basketball for a very long time. Lots of pets. That's about it. <laughs> I just want to ask you a little bit about that. So, you know, growing up in that sort of lower socioeconomic area, and, and I had the same experience, you know, while I came to Australia five or six years after the white Australia policy, we lived in a very so lower socioeconomic area because we came to the country with $50. In your case, did that sort of experience propel you to want to succeed in your business life? Yeah, it really did. I guess for me, it was very important, uh, well, to my parents, it was very important that I would go off to university and get a good job. And I guess a good job at that time was, you know, basically just working in the office. Yeah, so it was a white collar job as opposed to as opposed to a, a blue collar job. But yeah, certainly that was very much what, you know, my parents wanted for their kids was just to make sure they all, you know, finished school, went off and, and did other things and sort of made something of themselves, I guess. You know, most kids have two choices. They can rebel against that and go and do their own thing or they can go, yep, that's a great idea. I'm going to go out and get a job. What sort of propelled you to want to get into work, basically? So I guess there would have been no rebelling against it. Like we just saw our parents working so hard, like dad worked seven days a week mum left in the dark and came home in the dark, like there would be, you know, I don't think anyone who came from a family with a work ethic like my family would then go on and, you know, not be a, a driven person because it's, you know, it's been a part of life. For me, like going through school, like high school, I didn't have a lot of motivation. I didn't really enjoy the academic side of school at all. 
Then I went on to university, which is what the, the family wanted and all of that stuff. And I really didn't like that either. And it was only at work. So I worked in retail. I worked at Target for five years or Target, as everyone who, who used to work at Target called it at the time. Uh, and so we, like working, I sort of found a real purpose. You know, like I just liked sort of going somewhere, you know, someone asks you for something, you do it, they say thank you. You know, I liked that sort of transactional, you give something, you get something back. And so when I decided to work full time, I think I sort of didn't come into myself as a person or or really think about what I could achieve in my life until I actually started work and realized that people can have qualities in life beyond academic qualities. I'm probably not clever, but I'm not academically driven. Don't worry, I hear you loud and clear. And, and it's interesting you mentioned that because, and, and you, you did say you dropped out of university, but subsequent to that, you've taken up other studies. So you've done an MBA. When did that education penny drop for you? When I started working at CHU, I guess the first thing was, it was a part of my probation that I had to do my, my tier two, which was the you know regulatory requirement for general advice at the time. Um, so I did that. And then, you know, someone said, oh, it'll work in your favour at work. You know, if you like this job, if you uh, do your certificate four. So I, w- I went and did that. Then I did my diploma. And I guess what I liked was that it was directly applicable to the work that I was doing. And so I finished all of that. And I probably still had very much the view that I had completed my studies at that time. <laughs> you know, what was probably six years of, of studying uh, through ANSIF. And then the managing director, I think at the time, came and said, came to Adelaide and said, you know, we've seen you, you know, we'd like you to stay with the company. We want to progress you. We want you to manage people. And I sort of said, oh, I don't think so. I don't, I don't necessarily think I should be a people manager. And they sort of asked me why. And I suggested that I wasn't necessarily qualified. And so then they were very much driven to, get me into academic study, which is how I started my MBA. And still at the beginning, I didn't sign up to a full MBA. I just signed up to, you know, the first subject and then the next subject. And then five years later, I had an MBA, which normally takes people, I think, about three years. But yeah, for me, it was just doing it in bite-sized chunks as opposed to, you know, committing to a full uh, degree at the time. But the other thing was like, pieces that I could use um, where I could directly apply it back to work, I particularly enjoyed. So if I could do a case study on, you know, and use CHU as the example, I loved that. I really got into it. Whereas if you're doing a theoretical company, uh, that wasn't so interesting to me. Um, And so I actually loved it. Like it's probably the best thing I've done in my life, but I pretty much went into it kicking and screaming. (laughs) It's also a huge time commitment, so I'm not all that surprised. I want to talk a little bit about 2017. You were named Young Insurance Professional of the Year at the Australian Insurance Industry Awards, and, I, and people can't see you smiling, but I can see you smiling. What was that like for you? In the lead up to it, so the application was almost half done by the time anyone told me that I was being nominated for this award by the company because I sort of very much would be the sort of person to not want to have that sort of recognition, like individual recognition. Like I grew up playing team sports. I'm I'm not someone who wants to stand out 
from the team. And so I was quite reluctant, was very chuffed uh, to be a finalist. But then as soon as it, it came to being a finalist, I was absolutely sick in the lead up to the, the day because I felt like, again, because I've, I've always been a team person, you know, people were like, yeah, you're going to win. You're amazing. And I was really feeling like, oh, I might let this whole team down. And it's a bit of that imposter syndrome, me going, oh, they all think I'm, you know, way better than I am. And I've looked up all these other people who were nominated and they're amazing. There was a girl in my year who had written a book about insurance. You know, I was thinking, these people have got rocks in their head if they think I'm going to win. But the actual moment um, when they said my name, everyone at the CHU table just, you know, like they jumped up, like they jumped out of their seats and they were so happy. And it was, you know, like it was a really emotional moment, like just to have all these people who you know and really respect, you know, just rooting for you. Yeah. And it was, I was very happy. And it's one of those things that you never, ever forget. You know, it's a pivotal moment in people's lives. It's not just the recognition, but the fact that people see you as being valuable in the community. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I just want to talk a little bit about CHU because you've been at CHU since 2005 when you joined them at the ripe old age of 20. You started as a customer service officer. You are now the CEO. Most people would have moved into a number of different organizations during their career. What prompted you to stay at CHU? So, yes, I'm very passionate about this as a topic because I do think quite often people leave organizations prematurely or because they, you know, they've been there for two years or they've been there for five years. And so, I worked in CHU and I've sort of had two careers at CHU. And what I mean when I say that is from 2005 to 2008, I did a lot of development on myself, but there probably wasn't a lot of momentum in the organization wanting to further me. And so I actually left CHU in 2009 and I was gone for 12 months and I went to work for a broker. And what I learned in that time was A, I didn't ever want to be a broker. I fully respect all the brokers in the industry, but I very much like being on on the underwriter and insurer side of the fence. And what I also learned was things that I thought weren't happening for me at CHU. There probably were some opportunities, but I wasn't doing enough for myself. And so I got the opportunity to come back to CHU. And this is why I, I would say I'm very passionate about you know, people hanging around is you can't foresee, you know, what's going to happen in the hierarchy of reasonably large companies. And, and what happened was the person who I thought would never leave uh, left. And so an opportunity arose there. And so when I returned, I knew that I loved CHU and I knew that I liked the organization. I also knew that I liked what we did. And so they had a renewed interest in developing me, but I also had a different perspective on all the things that I probably didn't write in the expectations around what should be happening in my development and how much ownership I should have over that. Yeah, I would say I've been 100% self-driven, not waiting for anyone to give me anything. And so I've been back now at CHU for 13 years. And yeah, so there's been nothing. I never leave anything to chance. If there's anything that I think... And I mean, I'm the CEO now, right? But 
in other roles, if there's anything I think I should have responsibility over, I go and ask. I don't wait for anyone to uh, just sort of hand it to me. I go and say, look, I think this isn't going great. I should sort of, I could probably look after that and this is what I would do. And that has gone a very long way for me is just taking on things that are outside of, of my role. Um, and it also meant, you know, going into the CEO role, I've done a lot of things that are outside of the remit of the actual roles that I've had. Yeah. I'm assuming you've got to do your own role very, very well to get the opportunity to do that though. Yes. But I mean, yeah, I guess by the time I've been a branch manager in three different locations. So, you know, that role in itself, uh, once you've done it, you know, the ins and outs of the role and the only thing that's different are the employees and the clients. So, yeah, I probably, by the time I got to New South Wales, which was our biggest business, I was very experienced as a as a branch manager by then. And so I did have, you know, I had a headspace to do other things. I just wanted to so say you mentioned, you know, moving around a little bit in terms of different branches. You you left Adelaide to take on a new position in Queensland in 2014. That would have been the first move, I presume, for you out of Adelaide where you were working in a different state. Was that challenging for you in terms of were there challenges that you didn't expect to encounter and you've got, oh, I never thought of that? Yes. So I guess the first thing is I was away from my family and I'm very, very family oriented person. But the other thing is that I, I think a lot of people who know me are probably sick of hearing this story, but actually on on the first day that I started work in Brisbane, I found out I was pregnant. You know, that was unexpected challenge that sort of came in, which, you know, obviously just being a mum and everything is challenging. But moving into a new state jurisdiction and, and particularly Queensland, I don't think any Queenslanders listening would be offended if I said that they can be quite parochial. And so I was thinking, you know, I'm coming in with 10 years worth of experience at, at this stage in Strata. And these Queenslanders, both the employees and the clients were like, you're not from here. You don't know about Queensland. And so it didn't matter that I had 10 years worth of experience in Strata. So everyone put me through the paces. And it's funny now when I go back to Queensland, so I was there for four years when I go back to Queensland, they're like, she's from here. Her baby was born here. <laughs> the time it was, uh, she's from Adelaide. Well, you know, Adelaideans could be a little parochial too, can't they? I don't know. I think we're used to in Adelaide having people sort of come and go. Yeah, you, particularly in business, they'll bring people from Melbourne or Sydney to run a whole branch of Allianz or a whole branch of QBE because they're, they're a smaller branch. So they, they like to test out their new managers. And so there was always in the industry people sort of shifting in and out of Adelaide. So I think there was probably a bit more acceptance. And also in Adelaide, there's, you know, it's, we've got half the population of a city like Brisbane. And so it's just exciting to have someone you don't know in the room. Yeah. <laughs> Not your cousin or anything. Yeah, that's it. So you're now in Queensland, but you have a, a child there. How is that working for you from a career perspective? It was also, it was completely unexpected, was the first thing. What it did was it made me realise when my baby was about six months old that uh, I actually really liked working. I always sort of dreamed about going on leave for a year and I actually told people that I was going to finish my MBA while I was on leave. <laughs> so I did none of it. I did none of it while I was on leave, but I did only end up taking, I think I took eight months off because I was sort of had enough of being at home. But yeah, so I learned to 
that I really actually enjoyed work and my identity as a professional person was actually a big part of my whole identity. Did you feel that other people didn't quite see it the same way? You know, there's that, let's call it antiquated view that, you know, if you've got a child, you should be at home looking after the child, you shouldn't be working, et cetera, et cetera. Did you feel any of that or not really? Do you know where I copped a bit of that was actually from my mother's group is I I would have been uh, one of the first people to go back to work and there was a lot of judgment out of the mother's group of going back to work, going back full time. Yeah, which I sort of wasn't expecting because we're all women about the same age, but there were people who'd been doctors and scientists who had no desire to, to go back to work and I just, I felt very driven to go back and you don't know before you have a baby, what that's going to be like for you. I'm sure there were people who thought that they would want to go straight back who then didn't. But for me, it was the opposite. In the workplace, there's a bit of it. And it, it's yeah more around people's perception of how much time you spend with your family as opposed to how much time you actually spend with your family. Yeah, understood. It's that quality versus quantity, right? Yeah. And I mean... I see my daughter now a lot more than I saw my mother growing up and my dad. And yeah, for totally different reasons, but I really don't feel guilty about the the amount of time I spend with my daughter because it's all quality time and she's an only child. So she's got me 100%, right? I want to sort of divert a little bit. Rumor has it that you found out on a Zoom call with Robert Kelly, he's the CEO and MD of Steadfast that you were going to be the next CEO of CHU. What was going through your mind at the time? CEO and MD of Steadfast and has just received an Order of Australia. Yes, in the Queen's Birthday Awards 2022. Yeah, I just saw an email then from Frank O'Halloran saying that Robert's been awarded an AM, which is, he deserves it, right? But yeah, so I knew that I was a good chance for the role. I had contacted Robert and sort of said, you know, what's happening and he wasn't responding. And I think he was actually just torturing me because I was so keen to know. And my predecessor, who was Bobby, had sort of said, oh, look, I think I think you're looking good for it. But it, it literally was on a call with three other people, you know, one of whom was finding out that they didn't get the role. <laughs> so, I mean, that was a bit awkward because I knew if I, they didn't know either. But yeah, it was on a call just with my predecessor and the sort of key leadership members of CHU that I found out I was getting the role. And, you know, I I did not have a speech prepared because like the Young Insurance Professional of the Year, I did not think it was going to be me. No, I, I really didn't. And the reason is the story. Like how many people get to become the CEO of the company where they had their first job? Like it's just, it's not common. And I couldn't imagine... Robert, who I, I didn't know other than a couple of meetings I'd had with him around the role, I sort of pigeonholed him as someone who, you know, was of the baby boomer age group who wouldn't put a young female in, in charge of a very large underwriting agency. And I obviously had him picked totally wrong. He's very different than what I probably imagined he would be like, but I didn't think, I did not believe I was in for it at all. And I guess you would also have been thinking about your age at that stage because you're you're one of the youngest CEOs that I know. Has it been a bit of a baptism of fire for you, Kim? Yeah, I think that would probably be a fair statement, Mark. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, we probably thought COVID was over and I'm doing quotation mark 
being that when I was appointed, it was my first day was 10th of December, 2020. So we'd had the lockdowns. It was before Delta. We sort of thought COVID was over. And then we had the, you know, quite nasty strain come through Australia of COVID. We had more lockdowns, a lot of challenges. Uh, We had a lot of catastrophe activity in 2021. But then we also had a year of probably unprecedented compliance changes to the point where, you know, they were introduced in uh, four different tranches throughout the year, post-Hain recommendations, legislation, all of that sort of stuff, code changes. And then came 2022, we all said, phew, thank goodness that's over. And then, yeah, we've obviously had the literal flood happen. We've had quite a number of claims out of this. It's the, the highest number of claims CHU's ever had for a single event unprecedented recruitment activity around it. So the challenges have been amazing, but also I'm feeling like at at some point it's going to get easier. And then after this, probably nothing can be hard. It's a pretty difficult thing to be the CEO in normal times, but being confronted with an event like that or being confronted with the raft of changes that was happening in the industry and people looking to you for leadership. How did you go about managing that? Leadership team at CHU, they're genuinely an amazing group of people. They're all, you know, very high caliber professionals who, you know, they all choose to work at CHU. So I'm sure they could all go and get paid a lot more money somewhere else, but they like the culture. They like that CHU's like an insurance company, but it's small. And so what I did have was a group of people around me who all were very, very good at their jobs. And so I had a risk and compliance, a head of risk and compliance who is absolutely across Royal Commission changes. I had a CFO who's absolutely across our insurance portfolio. And so everyone around me was so competent. I didn't have any trust issues and I didn't have to, other than making decisions around direction, I had all the right guidance around me and I felt very comforted by that the whole way through. It really speaks to, you know, whilst you might be the head of an organisation, you need the body to be working with you or you to be working with the body for it to really work properly, right? Yeah, I think that's what I know having worked through this whole organisation is that everyone has a role to play and every role is important. And so I could really see throughout the pandemic uh, in particular, but also the recent catastrophe, what my role was as a CEO was to be visible as a leader to our employees, but also to the industry to sort of say, CHU's here, this is what we're doing. And just to be there and let everyone know what it is that we're doing and where we're going. Certainty, I guess, if you had to put it in a word, just provide everyone with certainty. So your first day in the job as CEO, you come into the office We spoke about imposter syndrome before. Did you suffer any of that at the time? I'm really, really bad. And it's still till today. But yeah, so my first day as the CEO, I was addressing the leadership team. So we had a half day session. It's a group of people who know me very, very well. Some of them have known me for more than 10 years. And I was sick. I was absolutely sick in the morning getting up there. I started to talk and my voice cracked. And, you know, after a couple of minutes, it sort of kicks in and and then it got normal. But yeah, I mean, the imposter thing, and I'm I'm sure it happens to a lot of people, but 
yeah, when you have a trajectory like I've had in, in my career, it's unavoidable. I actually don't think we acknowledge it enough. I think people see people as being highly successful and very capable and very experienced and, you know, they'll get on with the job. But I think that sort of mental challenge, uh, we really talk about it, which is why I ask everybody the question. And, and more often than not, people say, yeah, I absolutely, I suffered it. So it makes me feel better because I feel like I'm not on my own. I want to read you something, Kim. Robert Kelly said of you, and I quote, Kim is a formidable executive who has a proven track record of success. And I'm delighted to see her continue her amazing career at CHU. We've spoken a little bit about it, but what's been the secret to the development of your career? I think just that I am personally driven, but also because I've sort of grown up at CHU, I kind of, I feel like it's my company. And a lot of people who work here, you know, like we feel like it's our company, like it, like it's our money. And when you're so aligned and driven, it means that you know that driving the organization's interests drives your own interests. And it doesn't matter at what level you are. If you're that way inclined, it's recognized because I really don't think that everyone has that. You know, some people will sort of want to do something for their job and other people will want to do something for their career. But I think the people who go a long way is where what they're doing in their role really aligns to what the organization wants to do and you propel each other forward. It's that alignment of personal branding versus corporate objectives, right? Yeah, I totally agree. We're speaking with Kim Johnson, who's the CEO of CHU Underwriting Agencies. Kim, in a CEO magazine article, October 2021, you said, and I quote, I've noticed that we've lost a lot of expertise in this industry over the past five to 10 years with baby boomers retiring. As the insurance market has been getting harder and harder, it really showed in different pockets of the industry that this level of knowledge isn't there anymore. I wanted to ask you, what do you think is the solution for that? I think there's a few things. I think we need to keep the young people coming through. You know, we need to recognize that we've had this gap and we need to make sure that we keep filling the industry up from the bottom with young people who we train so that we don't do this to ourselves again. Because I think, you know, we're sort of at risk of of doing it, you know, in another 10 years. Also, I think the academic study side of it is very important. So bringing people through ANZIF, for example. So I'm on the board of ANZIF and I think one of the reasons I'm on the board is because I've been very passionate about the academic study side of things over a period of time. So when we've got people who haven't had 30 years experience, they haven't had 40 years experience, the only thing you can replace it with is knowledge. And I think, you know, the academic study pathway combined with on-the-job opportunities is the way that you sort of supercharge someone's experience in lieu of actual years of experience. Do you think we're doing that well? I would probably say I don't see enough of the young people who are entering insurance wanting to go through the academic study side of things, whether it's because they can't see a direct pathway, whether it's that there aren't courses that they think are relevant to them. I think there's generally willingness from employers to want to put people through courses, but whether they let their employees know that that's something they want to happen 
and that's a career development opportunity for them where if you do this, then you can achieve a higher underwriting authority, a higher claims authority. You might get paid more. I don't know. It depends on the organisation. But yeah, I see here, I obviously offer it to everyone who I see coming through and I see have talent. But I do see even with people who have an inclination to stay at at CHU, that they don't necessarily have an inclination to do academic study. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's one of the beautiful things about the insurance industry. You don't have to have a degree qualification to get a job working in our space, in our sector. But on the other side, if we're trying to be a profession, then any profession, the the base requirement is to have some sort of sizable qualification. You know, when I first started in the insurance industry, and I'm older than you, much older than you, I wasn't allowed to do anything without the approval of the person that was training me. So we buddied up and that was the way life was. If you then went on to study, as I did, you were seen as being unusual. It wasn't the norm. So the normal education and training was more around on-the-job training, buddying up with somebody, them showing you the ropes, them checking your work you understanding things like the policy wording and proving you understood it. Do you think we're missing that part of the piece of the puzzle? I think that there's a level of the training we have to do. So, you know, we have to do work health and safety. We have to do dry cop. We have to do harassment and bullying. And and there's a lot of training that we have to do that maybe it's not that interesting where people don't necessarily feel inclined to want to then go on and do similar training after hours. But yeah, I do think there should be more recognisable pathways in the industry for people who are qualified. And thinking back to your time in the industry, what would you say the industry has given you personally that you never expected to get out of it? Probably everything. Like without being self-deprecating, like I didn't really have very high aspirations uh, for what I would achieve in my life. Five years ago, I wouldn't have thought I would be a CEO maybe in my career. And I've always sort of just worked hard and looked at at the next thing. But, you know, just sticking in this industry um, and becoming an expert in what it is that I do has afforded me amazing opportunities, which I'm just not sure even with my drive and my passion for what I'm doing, if I had applied it to something else, whether I would have had the same opportunities. Maybe I would have, but I think I came into insurance the right time and it's the right industry. I've got you know, big interest in, in what it is that we do and advancing the interests of the whole industry, not just myself or, or my company. But yeah, it, it's given me everything. And I think the biggest thing is you know, just a lot of self-confidence. I want to talk a little bit about that because one of the things that is constantly reiterated to me in these podcasts is that for some reason, men seem to possess this self-confidence, whether it's warranted or not, but women seem to struggle with it a little bit. So if there's 10 items listed for a job and a female can't do two of them, they say, I'm not going to go for that job. If it's a man, he goes, oh, it's only two items, I'll be able to wing it. Do you think that's part of the issue around the employment status, for, particularly for women? I do. And I'll give an example. So we recently recruited for a head of claims and we were recruiting for a long time. It was a hard role to fill. And we wanted to look at, you know, an equal number 
of final candidates that were males and, and females. And it's a part of our process that we would do that. And we had a number of less qualified male applicants who, who wanted to have a crack. And we had names being put forward to us by a headhunter for females because we didn't have enough females interested in the role. And I remember one in particular who was put forth uh, when we got in contact she said, oh, I just don't think I'm, I'm ready to be ahead of claims. And we said, yeah, look, the organisation that we are is smaller than the one that you're in. You know, you're in property and that's what we do. Uh, we actually think you've got amazing experience. And she declined to come in uh, for an interview. And on the basis that, and, you know, she's someone who, you know, it's a small industry, so we know people who know each other. It was 100% on the basis that she didn't feel qualified for the role. And so I guess that, you know, that's just case and point around what you're saying is, yeah, I don't know why men feel more confident, but I do believe it's a fact that women probably undervalue their contributions. And the other part about it is I think that uh, whilst people are saying that the, the balance between males and females in the industry is starting to reach that sort of, you know, I think it's currently 60-40. When I look at the roles that women occupy as, as opposed to the roles men occupy, very few people in, those, in that C-suite exec space are females. Do you think that's by choice or do you think that's by opportunity? Oh, it's probably both. I think, you know, there's a number of people who happily put you through the ringer. They won't necessarily be cognizant that they're doing it because you look different than the person they're expecting to be dealing with. And what I would say is is those sorts of things uh, I found to be short-lived, but it is how the relationship starts and you do have to prove yourself. You know, someone else might have to come in and they'll have to lose the respect of the room, whereas it's my job to earn the respect of the room. And, and so it is different. I do think there has been less opportunity, but I think we're in a time when people are really, they're conscious of, of unconscious bias. And, you know, just, you know, calling these things out, making sure when we have a panel that there's 50-50 representation and making sure when we're interviewing that we're interviewing both males and females for a role, just doing those things and being cognizant of it, I think helps. And I think too, you know, this whole focus now on diversity and inclusion for people from the LGBTQIA plus community, I think that sort of stuff highlights it even further. So I'm hoping that over time, things change for the better and, and, and people get greater opportunity. I want to talk a little bit about the people in your life. And I'd love to know who's the most influential person in your life. I don't know who is the most influential person in my life. I think I've had different people at, at different times who I've taken counsel from. I think at, at the moment, the person who can most influence me would be Robert Kelly, being that he's on the board of CHU, he's a CEO and an MD of Steadfast. And so, you know, my ears are very, very open <laughs> to what he's got to say. But throughout my career, I have had different people who I've taken counsel from at different times depending on, you know, probably what it was that I needed to, to learn. Have you had a mentor in your business career? Yeah, I've had a few. Yeah, so I've been working recently with Anthony Day, who used to run Suncorp, I think, just as a, you know, from when I first became the 
CEO, I sort of, you know, it's a bit lonely at the beginning. You know, you stop being able to talk to your manager about things. He was a good person for me to to have to bounce things off of. I've had others through, through the time, whether it be, you know, someone who works in IT or someone who works in HR in a different business. I'll pretty much listen to, to anyone who's got something useful to say. <laughs> That's the great thing about being new to the role, right? Your ears are very wide open because you don't know what you don't know and you know that you don't know it. So, you know, I think that's a powerful position to be in. One of the things, one of the sayings that I love is that successful people are a result of the mistakes they make. But for me, it's also, more importantly, it's what they've learned from those mistakes. What do you think you've learned from some of the mistakes you've made along the way? Probably most of the mistakes that I I sort of make will be you know, it's sort of the, the things that are your biggest strengths are also your biggest weaknesses. And, you know, I'm a decisive person. And so sometimes you can make a, a hasty decision without considering all of the consequences. And it's that, you know, that thinking fast and slow. And, you know, sometimes you've got to force yourself to think slow when, you know, it seems like there's an obvious decision. Sometimes that realisation comes to you too late as well. The good thing is it comes to you, right? Some people never understand it. I am very self-aware because, you know, when you're someone who is a bit self-deprecating and got imposter syndrome and, and all of that sort of stuff, it's easy to try and think about all the things you do wrong, but it does make you self-aware. And that's a really important point because you do have to catch yourself doing things right. And, and that's not easy. I wanted to ask you, has there been a significant turning point in your life? There's probably been a few points like that. You know, becoming a mother was a significant turning point in my life because before that, I really only cared about me. And it's very interesting to have someone else who is, you know, your full focus and to be able to have a full, you know, your full focus then doubled because, you know, your focus on other things doesn't waver, but you've got someone else who you care about. I think uh, being appointed the CEO of CHU was just, I can't express to you how much. I did not see that on my own horizon. Like even if it might have been something that I quietly wished for in the back of my mind, I didn't ever see that happening for me. And it's probably some of that as I was growing up, I could never see anyone like I am now. And so, yeah, having that appointment and having that sort of come true and going, they don't just, you know, let any bozo run a company. Like it it gave me a new level of, I guess, confidence in myself that, you know, maybe I wasn't like faking it the whole way through. (laughs) Maybe there was some substance. I have no doubt there's plenty of substance from from certainly the people I've spoken to you about you who think, uh, you know, you're just amazing. I want to know if you were able to go back to that 20-year-old girl that joined CHU and you were going to give that human some advice, what would it be? So I think early on, and some of this is indoctrination that I had, you know, i I had a very hard manager and it was, you know, everything, there was a way that you did it and there was a time that you did it in the day and it was extremely structured. I do not have a structured brain at all. And so it was very hard for me to come into this structured environment. And so, you know, like I I really tried to be perfect and do the right thing all the time and, and be a certain way. And what I have found over time is that when I'm at my best is just when I'm being myself. You know, I'm not reading from a script. I'm 
I'm saying what it is that I feel. I'm, I'm doing what it is instinctively that I should do. And I'm doing it as my whole self. I'm not putting on the professional version of me. I'm just being me. It's interesting that you mentioned that because one of our podcast guests was a lady by the name of Cassandra Goodman. She and I worked together at GE many, many moons ago. And because of that and many other experiences, she wrote a book called Self-Fidelity, which is exactly about that, that, you know, it takes courage to be your authentic self in the workplace, doesn't it? Yeah, it definitely does. Because the me that I am, I'm, I'm probably not the CEO everyone's expecting. Yeah, even when they think of a CEO, like they might think of someone who's, you know, quite masculine or maybe standoffish or something like that. I'm sure there's a lot of stereotypes that, that you could reel off. But yeah, I'm just who I am. I'm not a front. I'm not a facade. Yeah. And there should be more of it. If you could change one thing about our industry, Kim, what would it be? I could change something about our industry. Do you know what it would actually be? It would be the perception of our industry from the media, from you know the general public. I think you know what we do is really important. We contribute a lot to communities. You know, we're about to put nearly five billion dollars into southeast Queensland and and the Northern Rivers, New South Wales. And it, it's really not appreciated. I, I think, you know, a lot of the stories that come out of our industry are actually negative stories instead of all the all the great stuff that we do. And it, it makes me a bit sad because when I see the the level of effort that, you know, particularly claims people put into to getting things done and all the trades, all the assessors we work with, you know, to put people back right, it I don't think that there's enough recognition publicly for what it is that we do. And it's that whole, you know, at a barbecue, it would be nice if you said, oh, you know, I run an insurance company that people are like, wow, that's amazing. It's not necessarily what happens. Unfortunately, no, it's usually, oh, I've had this claim and it was knocked back and, and you get into that sort of discussion, right? Because it's all that negative stuff that sells papers. I want to ask you a couple of final questions, Kim, before we let you go. The first one I have is, do you have any advice for those people seeking to advance their insurance careers? I mean, you've mentioned a couple of times that you never ever thought you'd be a CEO. Do you have some advice for people who are seeking to advance their careers and, and daring to dream? So I think what I see people sort of doing wrong is expecting, having an expectation that their organisation will just advance them, sometimes without them having even vocalised what it is. Uh, that they want to do. The first piece of advice that I would have for anybody is to not be afraid to have an open conversation with their manager or their manager's manager about where it is that they want to be in five years. Like, There's not many people who actually want to significantly advance. There's a lot of people who are happy doing what they're doing. And organisations I deal with a lot every day. I've only run one and I've been involved in this one, but I think it's fair to say organizations are looking for their people who want to advance. And so identifying yourself is certainly the first step. The second step is that you have to do your own advocacy as far as you've got to develop yourself at first. So it's not your boss's or your organization's job to be developing you. If you want to go on and you want to do more, You've got to start. You've just got to start doing it. You can't wait for someone to ask you. It might be study and it may be that your organization is willing to pay for the study, but you have to do it in your own time. And I think 
what I see is that people, they won't necessarily realise that just because HR says you don't need to work more than nine to five, you know, if you want to do extra and you want to be more, you probably have to do it outside of your normal role. And so you might have to put in a bit of extra time. If that means that you then advance a couple of years earlier than you would have, it's time well spent. So you really have to invest in yourself through the way that you're spending your time. And the other thing I think is just the network. I think a lot of people in my experience have, you know, like they want to impress the CEO or they want to impress the managing director. Or if Robert Kelly's in a room, they want to impress him. But the network that people need to be building is the people around them. It's what their peers say about them. It's what their competitors in other organizations say about them that really matters because no one's, you know, what your boss thinks is very much driven by the work that you do, but who you are and and your network. And, you know, for me in my age, the leaders of the industry now are starting to be people who I went to young professionals with. And it's really important to build those colleague, fun, social relationships, as well as just the serious ones. 100% with you. No doubt about it. Well, my final question to you, Kim, is what's next for Kim Johnson? I've got a lot of plans where I am. I've probably been someone who I've always been quite focused on doing what it is that I'm doing right now. Uh, so there's a few things that I want to do in CHU or with CHU that I won't be happy, I won't be content unless I achieve them. So that's to say lots of people have noted that in my roles that I've had, I've only sort of had them for two years, but it, that hasn't been by any design. It's just sort of been how it is. But yeah, no, I've, I've probably got a few things that will take me out couple more years after two years. So I'll be here for a bit longer. Good to know. Kim Johnson, thank you so much for spending a bit of time with us on Business Made Personal. Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much for lending us your ears. Please remember to click follow on your podcast app or subscribe at bmppodcast.com.au so we can give you a sneak peek of our next guest. Until next time, I'm Mark Silvera and you've been listening to Business Made Personal.